Hey there. You know what day it is. I don't need to tell anybody what day it is, although I will. I have that right. It's the one day of the week that I will say out loud, and that's Thursday. It is Thursday. So it's nice that I have the opportunity to do a little episode. I've been doing some work for some people, been busy doing that. I'm always hesitant to talk about that kind of thing. I'm not hesitant to talk about working, but uh, you know, any kind of physical labor. I'm very self-conscious of it. And I believe that's because people from middle-class backgrounds love to grab a hold of their one summer job where they had to do something physical. That one summer where they worked in a warehouse or that one summer where they painted houses, that kind of thing. I'm very self-conscious of that. Being somebody from that background, being somebody from a background that didn't require me to be blue-collar, and I'm not. It should be pretty obvious that I'm not from a blue-collar background. Uh, What I always say to people, as far as my own background goes, what I always say to people is that I grew up spoiled. Not spoiled rotten, but spoiled, but not rich. You know, I would say that my family was in the middle class category. We were not upper middle class, nor were we the middle of middle class. So it's like, I feel like my family background, you know, my parents were both self-made. And I would say that I was between middle class and upper middle class. But I'm always reminded of my middle class background when I meet actual rich people. And I'm not talking about, you know, multi-million billionaires, multi-million billionaires, I'm even just talking about people you meet casually. You know, I'm friends with a girl who I would say she's a rich girl. And hopefully if she listens to this, she doesn't think that she's the rich girl I'm referring to. Because she's great. She, She handles it extremely well. But it's funny to me in talking to her where some she'll just drop some casual things about her upbringing and background and her taste. Some things will come through in her taste, you know, her taste for fine dining, just some of the sorts of vacations and things she did growing up, things that were normal to her growing up. And I'm, and it makes me realize, like, holy shit, like, I know nothing about I, I didn't even know anybody, you know, because I would say that I grew up in a community, in a town where nobody was worrying too much. People were steadily employed. I feel like, you know, my dad was a local, or a, not a local business owner, but he was a, uh, I guess you could say that, but he was a, a small business owner. You know, my friend's dads, some of them were in similar sorts of positions. You know, if they, their comfort was earned, you know, their comfort was earned through hard work and nobody was worried about eviction or food and people could afford to take a plane ride vacation every year you know and it varied there was a range and there were, you know i had some friends who were lower lower middle class other friends who were much higher economically than me but for the most part people were stable and comfortable that's how i describe the sort of environment i came from and I, that's how i describe my background But in talking to this rich girl, and I hate to call her a rich girl. I hate to even call her that. I'm kind of saying it as a joke. But uh, just through knowing her, it's just funny how different even her upbringing was. And I wouldn't say she was super. You know, I'm not talking about 
people who are in the the 1% or whatever they say. She, I don't, I don't believe she was. Uh, but it's interesting, and I can tell that she has a little bit of guilt, and that's got to be so difficult, raising a kid in, a, in an actual rich environment. You know, because like I said, I was spoiled, but not rich, and there is a distinction there. Like, when I say spoiled, what I mean is that my mom, and, and specifically my mom, she basically, you know, if she saw that I was passionate about something, she would make sure that I was equipped to pursue that passion. So if I was really into Ninja Turtles, she would buy me Ninja Turtles action figures. If she saw that I was really into art, most of it was stuff that was creative or imaginative. And I think that's the beauty of my mom's parenting, which was not perfect, but, you know, my mom's parenting, I, I feel like the what was ingenious about it is that she was able to recognize when both me and my sister were passionate about something that was creative or imaginative, and she made sure we were equipped to pursue that passion. And not everybody can do that, and some parents choose not to do it even when they can, so I feel especially grateful for that. And I don't even know that that would be called spoiling your kid, but it, basically it meant that I, I wasn't wanting for things constantly. But also, my interests weren't necessarily material. You know, it wasn't necessarily like I was looking for, you know, gold. You know, it's not like, I want jewels, Mom. You know, it's not like I was looking for, for things like that. It was, you know, uh, it was like action figures and things like that. You know, it was just she, when I got into music, you know, she would buy me CDs if we went out, things like that, you know, things that I, I consider a luxury. I mean, I consider that a luxury, but, uh, you know, it was things that fueled my passions. It, there wasn't a lot of whimsy as far as, you know, just buying me random expensive things so that I would have them. You know, there was none of that. And I'm not even, this isn't even me justifying anything, but that was, that's what I mean by spoiled. Basically, it means that, you know, things that I was interested in were available to me. And, and I really, I don't, I don't feel that she made a wrong move in doing that. Um, I feel, because, like, she also made it very clear, because, I mean, she was from a dirt-poor background. It doesn't really get, you don't really come from more adversity than she did. And I guess the only bright side of her upbringing is that she wasn't one of the kids her mom abused, <laughs> you know? Like, the only thing she really had going for her, aside from what she naturally had, was the fact that she wasn't one of the two out of six siblings that were the targets of her bipolar mom's poverty-induced, maniacal abuse. You know, the mom singled out two children that she, I guess, just didn't like, you know, so, which is bad, too. The fact that my mom wasn't one of the kids who got abused, that can make a kid, that can mess up a kid, I don't know about worse, but almost as bad to be the kid who doesn't get hit. Like, why am I the one who doesn't get hit? Um, but, uh, you know, my mom, you know, you don't really come as, in terms of just financial background resources my mom you don't really start with less than she started with 
so so she instilled in us that perspective you know she taught my sister and i like about her upbringing what that was like and made it clear that we can't mess up we have to get good grades we have to be good honorable people so you know I, i'm happy with that i'm not you know i'm not saying this to because she raised us perfectly but i'm happy with my upbringing but i'm so I sometimes feel like, oh, because I because I had more opportunities than, say, somebody who was on the bottom of the economic spectrum, I sometimes, you know, it's it's something that when I, you know, it's just something I've had to consider. It's something I've had to think about. I've had to have that perspective. But then I do meet someone like my rich girlfriend, not, not to be confused with girlfriend, uh, and I'm just like, whoa, that's a whole other world. That's a whole other world that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And uh, what I was going to say about that is that they, her parents did an excellent job because she's a humble, great person. But that's got to be so difficult, raising a kid in, a, in an actual rich environment. Because on one hand, you could make your kid feel really guilty for the opportunities and resources they have. And that's really obnoxious. A rich person who just is guilty all the time. It's like a white person who's guilty all the time, which there's a correlation between those things. It's, it's just an obnoxious thing to be around when somebody has a lot of resources and they're constantly like, they're, they're constantly trying to prove that they're not one of these affluenza kids. You know, they're constantly trying to prove that they earned what they have or they're trying to justify it and they're expressing this guilt over how relatively easy they had it. And I say relatively because, you know, we all have our existential crises and I imagine rich kids have plenty of them. Uh, but uh, it's got to be very difficult to raise a kid in that environment just because it's like you don't on one hand, you want your kid to have perspective. You want them to know that they have it better or at least they have more opportunities and more security than most people in the world. But you don't want that to turn into this weird guilt. You don't want that to turn into one of these trust fund kids who's role playing as a, you know, barista you know what I mean? You don't want them to turn into that where it's like, oh, I work a service job and, you know, I'm living in a shitty apartment. But meanwhile, they have, you know, tons of money in the bank. And it's it's really just this, it's an effort to be cool. I've, I, you know, I was talking about that recently. It's like rich kids think that in order to be cool, some rich kids, I'll get into that. But some rich kids think that in order to be cool, you have to reject your wealth. And usually that doesn't involve actually rejecting it. Even if the kid tries to work hard and earn their own living, it doesn't usually involve, you know, totally rejecting it because you really can't, especially if you're close to your family and that kind of thing. At least, you know, I don't know how this all works, but I just, I just assume that it's like, even if you become a, a service worker, you know, even if you work in the service industry and live in a shoebox apartment and shop at the thrift store, unless you've completely severed ties with your family, you still have resources available to you. Even if you're not accepting checks, you know, it's like you still have, you know that the resources are there. There is a mental security to that, to knowing that if things get truly bad enough, 
you're not going to be homeless. And uh, but people like to role play. And so there are a lot of people from affluent backgrounds who role play. And even kids from middle class backgrounds. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at at the beginning of this, where it's it's not even just the upper end of the economic spectrum, but it's also the middle. You have a lot of people who come from just comfortable and safe middle class backgrounds who also like to do a similar form of role play, a similar form of LARPing. And it's largely to be cool. Because we live in a society where it's not cool to say, I'm a rich kid. I'm a rich kid. I never had to work for nothing. Come ride in my Ferrari. Come come here, come here. Get in my, my Ferrari that I did nothing to earn. You know, nobody wants to say that, especially in that voice. I feel like that voice is perfect. Um, if you're going to be a rich kid who just brags about it, talk like that. But uh, but it's one of those things where, you know, in our society, it's become it's cool to struggle. And that's why I'm, the American Idol procedure is to tell a sob story about the singer. Why do we need a sob story? What makes a sob story, you know, what makes a singer better or more appealing to the public? Because they have some sort of sob story whether it's because they came from nothing or whether it's because their mother-in-law had cancer, whatever the story is, there's this tendency in American culture that's gotten stronger and stronger, and it's gone hand-in-hand with this sort of victim mentality to present a sob story, and that makes you somehow more viable in a specific field, like singing or tap dancing. You know, it's just, it's a strange thing. And I guess the good thing about the American Idol approach to that, which is obnoxious, it's still obnoxious that they feel the need to, to manufacture, and not, not, not even manufacture, but because I think the stories are real, but they, they, they have to cultivate that and present it in a certain way. They have to produce it. The stories are real, but they are produced in a certain way. But I think the good thing about something like American Idol is the idea is that the person is overcoming it. They're still pursuing their passion and they're attempting to climb the mountain. Because the other side of that is what we see in what's been called, I guess, victim culture, where we don't really see that struggle or that push to overcome it. It's one thing when we're sold the story of struggle and overcoming adversity which is the classic story of contrast. And that is classic. You know, being a victim, but doing something to assert control over your life and make something of yourself against all odds. You know, that, I think, is actually healthy. Even though it's obnoxious the way American Idol and virtually any other entertainment outlet produces... And I say that, it should be like italics on that when I say it. If you're transcribing this, and I hope someone out there is, if you're writing this down, produces has italics when I say it. But the way that it's produced can be obnoxious, but at least American Idol, it's telling a story. And that story involves people singing <laughs> and, and whatever comes from that. Does that make someone a hero because they can sing? Well, it at least shows they have a passion and they're doing something with their life. 
Um, but, uh, you know, there is a whole other malignant side of that victim pedestal where you put someone on a pedestal as a victim with no story to it beyond the trauma and nothing good comes of that. And we're seeing that play out right now. But, um, but yeah, with, uh, with raising a kid, it must be insanely difficult to raise a kid in a wealthy, a truly wealthy environment and to make that kid one, not feel guilty but yet also have enough perspective not to throw their riches in someone's face. Cause you see people do that and it amazes me. Like I said, I didn't grow up around country club kids. I didn't grow up around that level of wealth. You know, I grew up around a lot of families who had two story houses and didn't drive cars that were falling apart. My dad did. But that's his choice. <laughs> you know, my dad chose to to drive cars that were falling apart. Um, uh, but but nobody, you know, was scraping by. Very few people I knew were. But uh, I didn't know country club type kids. I didn't know kids who existed in that world. And it just so I don't know what that's like. But I know that there is a certain element of that, especially I think when you have a peer group based on that. You know, when, when you're a country club kid, Clid, when you're a country club kid, which is hard to say, and you grew up around other country club kids, I think there's a part of that that just pushes away the guilt, especially if they're not raised to with, you know, perspective. And then that's where you end up with these insane rich kids racing their Lamborghinis and just, you know, taking no responsibility for their lives. Um, but uh, it must be hard to strike that balance as a parent because I can see where the middle class parents that I have and know, you know, it was even a struggle for them just to give their middle class children perspective. That itself is difficult enough to be in the middle and to still give your kid perspective. Because I've said this before, but the interesting thing about middle class is it's the one group that nobody is comfortable belonging to. Because middle class people either pretend to be poorer than they are or richer than they are. And of course, not everybody. I know middle class people who, who, are, who, who just, they're totally fine presenting a middle class front to people. No, of course they exist. But growing up, it's, it's kind of like the LARPing thing where a lot of middle class people that I've known and observed, and I've pretty much only ever existed in middle class environments, which I've never thought about before. You know, I've lived in a shitty apartment before, sure, whatever, but I've, I've pretty much only ever existed in middle class communities, and I'm totally fine with that. I'm totally comfortable with that. But what I've observed and, and experienced with people is that middle-class people have this identity crisis. I think there was like that 1950s picket fence sort of aesthetic, you know, where that was people embracing the middle class. Uh, but, you know, in my lifetime, being born in 1985, I've only ever seen this middle class that wants to be something else, that wants to either be poorer than they are because it's cool, it gives you street credibility somehow. Or people who want to be richer than they are because they want to be cool in that way. So people who live above their means or want people to think they live lower. 
than their actual means. And people talk about the disappearing middle class, and well, no wonder it's disappearing. Now, I, I know there's nefarious, you know, there's nefarious socio-political reasons why people believe the middle class is disappearing, and I know that's largely true, but I think part of the reason the middle class is disappearing is because the middle class didn't want to be middle class. It's manifestation. If you sit there thinking, you know, if you sit around saying, I don't want to be alive. I don't want to be alive. If you sit around saying that to yourself all the time, well, you're going to embed that in your subconscious Napoleon Hill style and eventually you're going to start acting that out. If you say to yourself every day, no matter how healthy you are, no matter how good your life is, if you sit around saying to yourself, I want to die, you know, if you say that over and over again every day, eventually you will start looking for opportunities to die or pursuing interests or activities that lend themselves to a quicker death. That's just how it works when you embed something in your subconscious, which is why the positive side of that, the Napoleon Hill Think and Get Rich, which is an incredible book, but the Napoleon Hill Think and Get Rich side of that is you embed positive messages. I want to be, you know, in good shape. He doesn't say that. He's talking about money, but uh, Napoleon Hill, very interesting guy. You know, he, of course, wrote one of the first, as far as I know, one of the first real self-help books, Think and Grow Rich. And, of course, it's about being an entrepreneur and acquiring wealth. And he's saying, you know, you repeat these mantras, your goals. You embed your goals inside of you by repeating them, often out loud. And uh, certainly in your own head, too. And by doing that, you will eventually, you know, un. By embedding those ideas in your subconscious, you will eventually act them out unconsciously. So, for example, if you say, I want to start my own business and get rich. I want to start my own business and get rich. I want to start my own business and get rich. I want to start my own business and get rich. You know, if you start saying that to yourself over and over again and you write it down or you say it out loud or you even just repeat it internally, when you're out in the world and you're not thinking that thought, you will make decisions that orient you toward that goal. You know, for example, you you might you might be out, you know, and you you see something that you want to buy but you don't need and you just think I'm not going to buy it whereas you previously maybe you would have, but subconsciously you know, okay, I'm going to use that money for something else. I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm not somebody who's financially successful, so I can't say I can't say like what you do, but it it does play out in other ways, and I've experienced this myself in terms of just learning how to control your own mind and control your own life and your own disposition, because that's what it boils down to. Because for me, like, I'm not somebody who, in good faith, can sit there and like, be like, I have this goal. I have this goal to do this. You know, I'm not somebody who can do that. I, I, it's just, you know, that's why I don't really gravitate toward chaos magic even though I've flirted with it and stuff like that, because it, it often involves manifesting some concrete goal, whereas my goal is to be in harmony and, you know, devoted to the deity. You know, it's, it's a, it, my goals are much more on that scale. You know, they're general in a way. 
they're specific, but they're they're focused more on general life quality and relationship to what it is to be alive. So I can't sit there and be like, I want to get a job as a cameraman. So I'm going to write down on a piece of paper, I'm I'm a cameraman. I'm a cameraman. I'm a cameraman. You know, I'm not going to write that down and repeat that because it just it feels silly to me. But if I did, if, if suddenly I had an idea where I was like, I really want to be this thing, I might do that because I know it works in the same way that I know the opposite works, which is repeating, I want to die over and over again, is going to cause you to make reckless decisions. And you won't even realize you're doing it because because of this mantra you've been repeating, but you've embedded that in your subconscious. Um, trying to get back to the this middle... Oh, yeah, well, so, so the reason why I, I feel like the middle class is disappearing, it's not just because the rich people are trying to make the middle class poor, although I believe that... I don't believe that's nothing. You know, I believe that's going on to some degree, but I believe part of the reason the middle class is disappearing is because they've been trying to be something else, and they've been basically saying... I don't want to be middle class. I don't want to be middle class. And by doing that, they're causing the middle class to become extinct. Because it used to be desirable. You know, the 1950s American, granted I wasn't alive and I only have this like distant, nostalgic lens, but the 1950s American, from what I see, they desired a middle class life. You had people who got out of World War II and just wanted to have a family and a stable job. These are people who had grown up during the Great Depression. And when you grow up in an environment like the Great Depression and experience something like D-Day, when you experience World War II, a middle-class existence sounds really nice. And I don't say that from my own experience. I think it's just it's, it seems pretty self-evident why a middle-class existence was the ultimate goal for people. Like, I look at my grandpa, who was a World War II veteran, and that's exactly what he did. I have a letter. I gave it to my dad on Father's Day. It was a letter my grandpa wrote to his hometown paper when he was stationed in World War II. In it, he says, you know, when I get back home, I'm never leaving. And basically, he just, he got back home. He started a family. He bought a house. He worked a steady job his entire life. He, you know, he invested in he in property to some degree. Like he bought like a lot, you know, he saved money and bought like another lot next door to his house, you know, and rented that house out, you know. But that's not that's not somebody who's saying, I wanna be rich. That's just somebody who's slowly accumulating some resources and his goals never eclipse just a middle class life. And that's stable. That's secure. And uh, so it makes sense to me why there was that ideal, why people actually wanted to be middle class at that point in time, especially because the middle class hadn't really existed before that that I can think of. Maybe maybe people know. Maybe it, maybe there are historians who are like, well, there was a middle class in Rome. You know, there probably was something like that. But just as far as the American middle class goes and how we define that today, it was a pretty revolutionary idea. 
It was a pretty revolutionary idea when you look at the history of man to simply want to be middle class. And I, I shouldn't even say simply because that was a pretty awesome goal in its own right. And then people had that and people still have it, but people had that middle class life and they gradually started to think, you know what, I think I actually want to be rich. And if I can't be rich, I want people to think I'm rich. So I'm going to buy the new car. I'm going to buy the new car. You know, people started to do that. And then the other side of it was, well, you know, we have it really good. But, you know, it's really cool to not have it good. It's really cool to seem like you're struggling. And that's something you see with the children of middle class parents. That's something you see more and more with Gen X and the millennials. And I'm the main millennial, so you know that I'm speaking the truth. And uh, so it's something you start to see with, uh, you know, my generation, which include I, when I say my generation, I mean like the children of baby boomers. Like I don't know very many baby boomers, and I actually know a lot of them, but I don't know many baby boomers who pretended to be poor to be cool. Because that's something that kind of developed in pop culture, and not just the mainstream pop culture, but also underground pop culture, underground culture, but I'll call it pop culture, because the underground newsflash, folks, the underground is pop culture too, which is why it feeds into the mainstream. If the underground was truly its own separate subversive thing, it wouldn't translate to the mainstream as easily as it does and it does all the time. So underground, no matter, it doesn't matter if it's noise music. It doesn't matter if it's extreme metal. Pop culture, folks. That shouldn't be a surprise to people who have, have been part of those things. Uh, so you, you can see where, you know, this idea developed of, of the... The rock star who's upper class. I mean, I know royalties trickle down, and I know that musicians don't always make as much as you think they make, but there's a certain level of rock star that we know lives it up. But it's sort of like the American Idol model, where when you have somebody like that, when you have the rock star archetype, there's also usually a story of struggle, where it's like they they practiced in their auntie's garage... And uh, the singer of the band washed dishes. He was washing dishes at a diner, and he they let him sleep in the ventilation hood of, of the oven because he couldn't afford to stay anywhere, and uh, he couldn't afford food. So the diner owner, who, who had a huge heart, let him eat. They, the diner owner, his employer, let him dip cigarette butts into ketchup and eat them like French fries because he couldn't afford food. He spent a year sleeping in the ventilation hood of the oven at the diner where he washed dishes and dipping french fries and ketchup or dipping cigarette butts in ketchup like french fries. You know, it's like there's some kind of story like that which justifies the wealth he acquired for being a rock star. And it's that story of contrast and struggle, which I'm not dismissing because it's important. It's why someone who broke the rules is more of an expert not just an expert in the rules, but someone who's broken the rules has more insight into why the rules are important than someone who's just never broken a rule in their life. It takes that kind of contrast to make an interesting story and to give somebody insight. So, 
you know, the idea of the rock star who was dipping cigarette butts in ketchup like, you know, they were French fries and, you know, couldn't even afford it to sleep in an apartment. So he, he slept in the ventilation hood. You know, that story resonates with people. And what happens when you have a generation of kids who worship that guy? They're not going to they're not going to want to admit that their mom bottomed the records. They're not going to go around being like, oh, yeah, you, you know, I, I worship the, I worship this this rock star. And my mom bought me all of his records. And my mom took me to his concert. That kid's going to be like, Mom, drop me off a mile away from the show so that I can pretend that I walked there. Don't drop me off in front of the Bon Jovi concert. You got to drop me off a mile away so that none of my friends see that you took me. And I, I sure ain't going to tell them that, I, that you bought me the tickets. You know, when you worship that model, you can't be... You can't really embrace the middle class lifestyle. You can't embrace an affluent lifestyle, especially when you worship that. You end up wanting to, in order to be cool, you have to struggle too. You have to struggle. You can't just be a middle class kid who listens to punk rock. When you move to New York, you got to slum it in a squat house. A squat house in order to play bass in the punk band. Oh, you're playing bass in the punk band, but your daddy's paying your bills to live in in a nice house? It doesn't work out that way. I mean, those people exist, and God bless them, but you can't really do that. You can't really do that because you want to be cool. And then, of course, people who are in that community are constantly pointing out when someone is a trust fund kid. I hear that all the time. I live in Olympia... And when I used to socialize, when I used to drink and hang out with people, one of the main forms of gossip is, oh, that that bartender or that guy in that band or that girl, they're trust funders. Because there was the idea of the trust fund hippie, which predates that, is the idea of the person in the 1960s, I guess, who you know, lives in a commune, lives on... Do you live in a commune or on a commune? In or on, I don't know. Uh, they live on a commune, and they secretly are getting daddy's money, you know, that kind of idea. And they're, they're less credible for it. They're less credible. And so therefore... And they know they're less credible. Less credible, why? We don't really know. If they pull their weight, they pull their weight, Right? But for some reason, socially, you're less credible, so you hide it, and it becomes a you know a potent jewel in gossip-based communities. <laughs> gossip-based communities. Every community, aka every single community on Earth, is a gossip-based community. But it becomes a a prize jewel to exchange when you're gossiping. When you can say, "Oh yeah, he's." He's actually spending daddy's money, or uh, she's a, she's a trust funder, and I've heard that about so many people that it makes me believe that everybody here is a trust funder. I know it's not true, but it just it's it seemed like it seemed to be something that people who legitimately came from rough backgrounds would say because they kind of have this feeling of like, you know, I had to work to get I had to work to be a punk rocker, I had to work to be a metalhead. 
there's that idea, and they sort of resent people who didn't have to struggle to get there. But then there's, of course, people who are the same thing. You know, there's many of the people who are saying so-and-so is a trust funder are themselves trust funders. And actually, I question the term trust funder. I think that people use that very generally. I don't know that, you know, with how many times I heard people in this town point out that somebody else is a trust funder, it makes me wonder if everybody, every other person has a trust fund. But I think people use that generally, where basically they mean that person comes from a a decent background. That person comes from a stable, safe, and secure family background. It probably isn't meant to be taken literally. Um, but it was amazing how many people say that. And so you can see where it's not just... It's not just that the individual themselves tries to hide it for their own, to seem cool. It's that if other people know that somebody comes from an affluent background and they exist in a community or a subculture where that's not cool and it's cool to slum it, people can use that as a weapon against them and they do it constantly. It's, just, it's used constantly against people. It's amazing, actually. And it's funny how that's all come about because it's rooted in this idea that you can't be a creative person. You can't have, you can't be a creatively potent person and come from an affluent background, which is very funny to me if you've studied art, which I really haven't, but I, I at least know this, which is that many accomplished and talented, and not just technically, but just gen- genuinely impressive artists in previous centuries were from affluent backgrounds because those are the people who could afford to be trained and had the resources available. The one I always think about is John Martin, who in the 19th century did just incredible, these large scapes of like hell erupting amidst ancient civilizations. And if you're not familiar with John Martin, you'll probably immediately recognize his work when you see it. It's almost biblical. But John Martin, I believe, was from aristocracy. I believe his family were aristocrats. And you find that. You find these blue-blood artists because those are the people who could afford to be artists. You didn't have peasants very often back then painting massive, beautiful, dynamic, multicolored paintings that took up a whole wall in a mansion. You know, like peasants, peasants were, of course, creative, I'm sure. But at that point in time, in order to create lasting art that was proficient and, you know, to to even just, it was just, you know, it it was just a different world. And many artists were blue bloods and their work was impressive. And John Martin in particular, I think about him often because I'm a fan, but his his work is spiritual. When you see it, you you know you it sort of drops your jaw, drops your jaw, because uh, it's just you'll see like this hellish element erupting out of the ground amidst some group of people with ancient architecture around, and I feel I'm describing it very poorly, but you just have to look at it. Art's art's one of those things you can't talk about. You have to just see it or hear it. 
but uh, it, it's it is impressive, and he's a blue blood. He's a blue blood, and fortunately, John Martin wasn't born in the twentieth century, so that he didn't have to pretend to be something else. He could pose for paintings of himself with a ruffled collar, looking like a, a noble a nobleman. You know, he could. He wasn't ashamed. The paintings of John Martin himself, you know, the portraits of him, they don't depict him in rags pretending to be, you know, a, a tenant in a squat house, if, if you can even call squat house tenants tenants. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it, there wasn't a need to do that, and it was understood that it, it took certain resources. It took a certain background, often a blue-blood, aristocratic, noble background, to even pursue art. Do you even have the means? Is that right or wrong? I don't know. I, I'm glad that peasants have an opportunity not just to make art, but to make a living making art. I'm glad that there's... I'm glad that this exists. You know, it's, it's like at no point do I think, like, art belongs to the aristocracy. Oh, you know, civilization went to... It went to heck the second that the peasants started being able to make art. I think it's wonderful that the peasants started being able to make art. But when that became celebrated, people who weren't peasants decided they needed to pretend to be peasants because it made them seem more credible, not just as artists and creators, but also as fans. Like, that's the crazy thing. This is how crazy things are, <laughs> is that to even be a fan of, like, punk rock... You have to pretend to be poor or to reject your family's wealth. It's not even just to be a punk rock musician. You have to pretend even to be a, you know, in order to be a fan, you even have to pretend to be slumming it or struggling. And that's crazy. It's impressive, but it's also crazy. But there was a point in time where it was just accepted that, you know, people, musicians of a certain caliber, artists of a certain caliber, were going to be of a higher class because those are the only people who could afford to do it. Those were the only people who could be trained. You know, it just made sense uh, on a practical level that those would be the people producing art, especially that we know about today, that it would be preserved, too. It's not just the fact that they were creating it. Just in order for their art to be known and preserved, they had to be of a certain class. But things have flipped where it's in order to have this credibility, in order to be cool. People want to be cool. And being rich is not cool unless you exist solely in a country club vacuum. And then it is cool to be rich. But if you're exposed to other classes, being rich is not cool, and even the middle class fears being perceived as rich when they want, you know, the credibility of the lower classes. You know, it's just, it's fascinating. So in that way, I'm not surprised the middle class is disappearing, because the middle class themselves want to disappear. But I do wonder, you know, with us facing another depression and who knows what kind of conflict is going to escalate, you know, I wanted to avoid talking about this, that today. Um, but with, you know, civil war, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? But with just, you know, the, the idea that things are going to be rough for a while, it does give me hope that at least people will respect the middle class again. And I don't mean respect them as people, but I mean respect 
a middle class lifestyle as something to work toward, achieve, and be proud of with no desire to lower yourself or raise yourself beyond that. To simply achieve comfort will be attractive to people again. So that's good. And I guess what started this whole discussion is just the fact that, you know, I'm painting a house right now. I'm doing, I'm being paid by a a family hired me to paint their house. And it's something that I'm not technically trained to do, but they need somebody who's willing to work hard and do labor. And that's me. And I greatly enjoy it. But I'm hesitant to talk about it because I don't come from some blue collar background. And I know there's this tendency among my peers to take that one summer job they had doing labor and bring it up the rest of their life as some form of justification for not being blue collar. And this isn't a new topic on this show. On every night to school night, I've always brought this up in the context of country music I play. And I've played just a couple trucker songs. I mean, people who are fans of country know that a subgenre of country music is trucker country, where it's like, big wheel. I'm, I'm driving my 18-wheel truck. It's a, it's, there's a lot of songs about driving your 18-wheeler and this and that. And I've played a couple of those types of songs when they're good, but I always give a disclaimer, and you know how I feel about giving disclaimers, but I always feel the need to give a disclaimer when I play songs like that because I don't relate to it. And I always think about the Ed Bruce song, The Working Man's Prayer. It's mostly spoken. I played it on one of the first Every Night's a School Night episodes, but he's given this, this monologue set to music, and the chorus is sung, but the verses are spoken. And it's called The Working Man's Prayer, and Ed Bruce is talking about, basically, like, I, don't, I don't remember the words, but it's like the gist of it. It's like, working my hands to the bone. I'm working my hands to the bone, and I'm living in a shack. You know, it's like that kind of idea. Working my hands to the bone, and I'm living in a shack. Those aren't the lyrics. Uh, those are my lyrics. <laughs> but it's, there's that idea, and it's very common in country music. And so when I play music that even hints at that, I always want to make it clear that it's like, I'm not identifying with this. And I don't identify with a lot of music that I like. I don't relate to everything I listen to, but some people do. Like, there are people, and I know these people, who they get a summer job, you know, digging ditches. And then they listen to country songs about digging ditches like that's their life. And it's because they want to, like, they now can identify with hard work because they're doing it for the first time in their life. I'm very self-conscious of that. Like, when I've had labor jobs, even though I enjoyed them, like, because I enjoy, like, the thing about labor jobs is as long as they're not going to, like, break your back or fuck up your knees or something... They're really, and as long as you're in decent shape, they're really enjoyable, but they're not something that you want to do every day for the rest of your life, which is itself a privilege. The idea of being like, oh, you know, I'm really enjoying doing labor on this this one-off gig or this thing that I know I just am doing temporarily. I'm really enjoying this. But that itself is like, you know, the guy who has to do that every day for the rest of his life because he's a, a convict, you know, it's it's like... He doesn't like it. Maybe he's Sisyphus and he does enjoy pushing the boulder, 
you know, Camus style. But uh, for the most part, it's not something that people think, oh boy. Whereas when you are from a middle class or affluent background, when you do labor, you think, oh boy, oh boy, this is fun. Oh, isn't it so fun? We, we're getting our hands dirty. We get, we get to get our hands dirty. You know, it's like when you, but when you've done jobs like computer jobs and that type of thing, there is something very enjoyable about having a measurable physical product that you can look at when you're done and be like, okay, I did that. I know why I did it. I'm not, there's no existential dilemma. I know, I know why, I know that I am hired to exert myself physically on a specific task that requires maybe some degree of technical skill, but it's not going to require you to constantly think. A lot of it's just being in the right flow state and not fucking up. Excuse my language. But, uh, you know, a lot, but I'm blue collar, so I swear. I'm doing a blue collar job, so I got to swear. That's another thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it's like while like recently working this job where I'm painting and I'm out in the sun and climbing ladders, while I greatly enjoy it, I'm hesitant to talk about it because I feel like I'm one of those people. Um, and that's that's kind of what started this rant is just that, you know, when you come from a middle class background, there's this desire to be blue collar. And then now, I, oh, now I, I got my merit badge, so now I can listen to trucker country. Oh, I got a job driving a truck. Oh, one time I loaded pallets into a semi. Now I can listen to trucker country and sing along. We're so, it's so sad. We're constantly looking for credibility. We're constantly looking for our merit badge in all these different ways. But, you know, with physical labor, there is a, it is meditative, you know, which is, which just, that exposes me right away. The fact that I could even say, oh, doing physical labor is like meditation. It's like that just exposes me straight off. But it is. It is. You know, I've been fasting while I do it too. So, of course, you know, I could get really out there about it, but I won't. I'm, I guess the point is, is I'm self-conscious of it because I know that, I know there's this mechanism in people who don't feel that they have the credibility of poverty and the credibility, the social credibility of a blue-collar background who look for opportunities to do that, and they LARP, and they role-play. And it's common, especially with this anti-rich attitude in our culture. Like, you think about all these people protesting and all these people... Oh man, it blows my mind how many of them come from middle to upper class, upper middle class backgrounds or even affluent backgrounds, you know, and I know that they feel this strong sense of guilt, but rather than untwisting their guts, untwisting their soul guts, they LARP, they role play and pretend to be something they're not. And I, it's important for me not to say that as a criticism in the same way that people in this town whisper about how, I mean, the guy that I saw in the grocery store a couple weeks ago that I talked about, the guy from the well-known metal band who was behind me in line, the number one thing people say about him behind his back, and remember, I don't know him. I don't know him personally, but everybody else seems to know him. But the number one thing people say about him is that he's a trust funder. And I, I think there's, I think it's true in his case. 
I've heard it from people who grew up with him and know him, but uh, and here I am saying it. But I'm just saying it because I don't judge the guy for it. Good for him. If his family had some sort of, you know, cash of cash, C-A-C-H-E of C-A-S-H, hard to say. If they have some sort of cachet of cash, um, cash of cash, uh, if, if they had that for him and that allowed him to be an artist, cool. Cool. I'm totally cool with that. But my point being is just that it's something people use as currency. And so I would hate to look at these people I know who are LARPing and role-playing and turn around and do the same thing to them that I see other people doing, which I see them doing, and say, oh, look at them. They're LARPing. They're LARPing. They're pretending to be a poor artist, a poor punk rocker artist. You know, I don't want to do that to them because I just don't like that that's even a thing. But I don't like that they have to LARP either. You know, I don't like that they have to role play. And I just wished that people could just see things as they are. And there's some things I don't talk about this show that are in my life that have been core parts of my life. I actually leave some things out that are core parts of my, you know, creative involvement. And so I'll I'll put it this way, because I I don't want to go into the details of it. But what I will say is that there's a certain subgenre of metal that I've been a longtime fan of and I've been involved in to some degree. And one thing that's so attractive about it is that it completely embraced the blue blood aristocratic approach. Even actually when it doesn't apply. What I like is, (laughs) even in that genre, even the poor kids who started those types of metal bands are role-playing that they are actually aristocrats. Evil aristocrats, too. Pretending to be the evil aristocracy. You know? That is fun to me. I like that that genre turned the tables. And I'm not going to say much more about it, because it's personal. And this show purposely doesn't include certain things. I purposely don't include certain things. Not to be mysterious, it's just not a part of this show. But I do like that certain subgenres of metal have flipped the tables on this punk rock roleplay LARP session that doesn't seem to ever end. And I like that they flipped the tables and we're like, you know what, we're going to embrace that sort of John Martin aristocratic artist approach while creating very rugged and esoteric music. You know, I I like that. I like that people did that. And I embrace that to some degree. Even though I'm not an aristocrat. Even though I'm not an aristocrat myself, I enjoy that that is something people have done. And, um... What else do I got? I had a whole bunch of other things I was going to say. I think I'll save it, though. There were more general social and cultural critiques. Not related to current event. Nah, I'll just say it. I don't, I'll probably forget it next time. I have a little bit of... I bought a cold brew, which is really working class of me. It's really aristocratic of me. Where does cold brew fit in? I think we all know where cold brew fits in. Uh, but, uh... I'm the working class aristocracy. 
I'm the working class aristocracy. Oh, I do want to talk about that before I segue. This will be a long episode, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about what I used to call, because I discovered this phenomenon. I was talking about country music. And this is before I was even a country fan, but I was talking about how, you know, you know, it's like you have one job where you dig ditches during the summer and that allows you to justify being a country music fan for the rest of your life. And this is an interesting phenomenon I noticed about 15 years ago. It was around the time whenever the blue collar comedy tour was at its peak, maybe 16, 17 years ago, 15 years ago, somewhere around there, less than 20, more than 15 years ago. Uh, but I noticed this archetype of people and I, I used to refer to them as families who get front row tickets to the, uh, to the blue collar comedy tour. That was the specific phrase I would use to describe these people, families who get front row tickets to the blue collar comedy tour. And they live in these McMansions that are on a bigger piece of property, not a farm, and there's a lot of them around here, actually, because Olympia, for as much of like a hippie, lefty stronghold as it is, has a lot of rednecks and pseudo rednecks on the outskirts of town. And there's a lot of them who have like, let's say dad of this family. Dad is a very successful construction contractor. And so the family has money and he earned it. And so they build a McMansion, the same sort of McMansions that you'll see in the suburbs, but they build it five minutes outside of the suburbs so that they can buy acreage. But they just have a huge lawn. They don't do anything with their property, really. They don't have a farm or anything. They just have a big piece of property with a McMansion sitting in the middle, usually no trees. And they have a huge fenced-in yard and maybe like two or three dogs. And they buy, or they did, this probably isn't happening anymore, but they, and they would buy front row tickets to the blue collar comedy tour and listen to Toby Keith. And I, I feel like this is low hanging fruit. You know, I'm, I'm above criticizing these types of people, but they embrace this sort of blue collar country attitude, even though they've moved beyond that. Even if dad is a contractor, you know, even though he earned his money through hard work, you know, the kids still embrace that. The kids still, they even develop a twang in their voice, even though they're from Western Washington. But they're part of that subculture where that's the currency. And they don't pretend to be poor, but they kind of play up like this country attitude, even though they're from Western Washington and they have money. But I used to refer to those types as the families who get front row tickets to Blue Collar Comedy Tour. Because all that stuff caters to that. CMT, Country Music Television, it caters to those types of people. You know, I'm sure there are like true white trash who watch CMT. But whenever I think about Country Music Television, it's so glossy. You know, it's got such a gloss to it. It seems to cater to people who are middle class or even upper middle class, but who want to maintain these country roots that they might not even have. Because there's a lot of role play in that too. And I'm above criticizing those people, <laughs> even though I'm sort of doing it. I'm just observing. I mean, the problem is, the thing that sucks is that humans are so flawed. 
including me, but humans are so flawed that sometimes to even describe them as they are sounds like you're talking shit. And I wish that weren't the case. I mean, it's it's what I've said about being fat, where the thing that sucked about being fat when I was younger is that for someone to even describe you is going to insult you, even though it shouldn't. And that's not because of fat phobia. It's just because we don't feel good. When you're fat, you just don't generally feel good, unless you're one of those really happy, buoyant people. But there's a, you know, I didn't think, I didn't think this was, was going to go into the fat topic, but it does kind of relate. Um, there's, because the people I notice who are, you know, in their 30s and 40s and beyond, who are fat and extremely happy and content, they're often people who weren't always fat. Whereas people who grew up fat and never stopped being fat, there's an insecurity there that has never been conquered and a sensitivity. And I don't say this to be mean because I was fat for over 20 years, legitimately fat. And because of that, I I never want to be fat again, you know? And, And so, but there's this thing though where it, if you were once in shape, but you got fat later, I feel like those people generally are okay. They're just like, hey, I got fat. Hey, I got fat, but I've, I've done everything I wanted in life. But if you were always fat and you never stopped being fat, there's just something, there's, a, there's, a, there's damage or something that's been done to somebody's ego. And, uh, but just to get back to my point, it's like the thing that sucked the most about being fat as a kid was that for people to even describe you. Cause like you, oh, uh, hey, hey, when you're over there, can you can you give this, give this message to Eric? Well, which one's Eric? Uh, light brown hair. Oh, there's ten guys over here with light brown hair. Uh, blue eyes. Oh, five of them have blue eyes. Uh, about five foot eight. I'm five ten, but let's say it was when I was younger. So, uh, about this tall. Well, I can't really tell how tall the people are. Uh, well, the fat one. The fat one. You know, it's like, eventually, like, if you want to describe somebody accurately, eventually you have to mention their build. And the thing that sucks about, and I was never that, like, when someone did call me fat growing up, I wasn't, like, wounded. But I didn't like it either. I didn't like being the fat one. But it wasn't like my feelings were deeply hurt, because I understood that that was what I looked like. And that's the thing that sucks about being fat, is that to even be described accurately is an insult even without words like ugly. Because it's one thing, like, there's things that are based on, like, sub- subjectivity to some degree. Like, you could say, oh, well, the ugly one. But people are going to have slightly different opinions on that, depending. Some people are probably, everybody's going to agree they're ugly, unfortunately. Uh, but there's things like that. But when it comes to something like weight, there's no nice way to describe somebody who's overweight. It's like saying, uh, uh, the heavy one. I think I've mentioned this before, but it's like I had a football coach, a bunch of people, but I remember in particular a football coach who loved me. And he would say to me, hey, big guy. And you do the math on that when you're like five foot nine, five foot ten at the most. Let's say I was fully grown, but let's say I'm five foot ten. And your coach calls you big guy. Well, I know he's not referring to my height. I'm not muscular, so I know he's not referring to my big muscles because I don't have them. What does he mean when he says big guy? Oh, 
Oh, yeah, I'm fat. And that's fine. It actually feels good. When you're a fat person and someone calls you big guy, it's like a sugar-coated... Com- I don't know. It's, it's, like, it's almost an insult, but it's kind of sugar-coated in a way. But you know that they're calling you that, not because you're big and muscular, not because you're seven feet tall. You know they're calling you that because you're fat. And like I said, like fortunately, I guess just you know, talking about being raised a certain way, I think I was raised with enough confidence to where I was. Ne- I never really had my feelings hurt when I was fat by being called fat. But at the same time, I didn't like it. And part of the reason I didn't like it is because I didn't like how it felt. I felt uncomfortable. Clothes were uncomfortable. But uh, at the same time, I still I didn't like being described accurately. And I feel like you should live a life where you aspire to be totally comfortable with someone's accurate description of you. If you don't like somebody's accurate description of you and you can do something to change it, you should change it if it matters to you enough. There are some things you can't change. But uh, but anyway, the reason I went on that tangent is just because it's like describing that sort of family who live in a, like five minutes outside of suburbia with a, a few acres of, of lawn and they, it justifies them buying a ride-on lawnmower and they buy tickets to blue-collar comp. They, they buy well-positioned, if not the front row, well-positioned seats to blue-collar comedy tour. And maybe father and son wear a cowboy hat and cowboy boots sometimes. But they're really just affluent suburbanites, but they have this country identity they want to preserve, and they do it by, like, affecting a twang. And it's what kids do with punk rock. It's what rich kids do when they pretend to be punk rock or pretend to be struggling artists when they work as a barista just so that their friends don't, you know, see the truth, which is that they are part of the ruling class. And that's kind of what these people, uh, this sort of right-wing... I guess what I'm talking about is sort of the different political sides of the equation of the spectrum, where the right-wing version is this sort of like, oh, we're just country folk. We're just country folk. Yo, we're just country folk. Uh, when re- the reality is they've become, if not part of the ruling class, something close to it, something in, that veers more in that direction, but they want to retain these country roots that might not even exist. And it's kind of the same thing you see with punk rock youth, which used to be a teenage phase for people, and now it's permanent. Now people don't out, now people don't grow out of punk rock. I mean, I know people who are really in in the original scene. It was a lifestyle that they didn't leave. But I mean, thinking about people I know from my generation, millennials, I'll tell you what, they're not the main millennial. But I see where they didn't grow out of it either. And there's not really an excuse for them. At least with people in the 70s and 80s who never grew out of punk rock, it was because they helped forge that, you know, they they helped forge that identity. And maybe they were in bands or they you know, somehow established themselves based on that identity. But with with my generation, what's so strange about it is that their identity really, there's no reason why that has to be their permanent identity, yet it is. And I, I use punk rock very loosely. I use it very loosely at this point. 
Um, but you can see where people on it, it's not a political thing because people on both ends of the political spectrum and everywhere else in between are looking for that sort of credibility. And that credibility often involves appearing like it often involves appearing to struggle more than you do to make ends meet and survive. Does that need to go away? I don't know. Maybe it's good that people are humble, but I think why people resent it, why there are always these whispers about so-and-so from such-and-such band being a trust fund kid is because it becomes more insulting when someone rich pretends to be poor. It's not humble. It ends up actually becoming somehow more egotistical and somehow more vain and insulting. Because when there's no subculture attached, when there's no artistic persona attached and a poor person becomes rich, they don't want to pretend to be poor anymore. You know, whereas when it's somebody who, you know, has something to prove in some way, whether it's political or artistic or both, they kind of try to hold on to that earlier identity or manufacture it entirely. So I guess long story short is I'm conscious not to do that, which is why, you know, even though maybe occasionally I'll mention doing something, it's like when I do, you know, if I, if, if I spend the rest of my life digging ditches, I still don't feel like I'm a, a ditch digger. And I'm not going to listen to music about ditch diggers and sing along like it speaks to my soul or something, because I know that's not where I come from. And I'm not trying to be superior over anybody else in saying this. It's just something that I try to stay aware of to keep my own perspective. I want to have my own perspective. And I don't want to... I guess I don't want to grasp for credibility in that way. I would hope that my own credibility comes from exactly who I am. And I think that's all any of us can hope for, is that our credibility comes from who we truly are. Otherwise, what's credible about it? This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.